Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Tied Together by Cohesis Group, where we talk about all things digital going on in the world. My name is Lindsay Brownlow, I'm Head of Experience at Cohesis, and it brings me great pleasure to introduce you today to Thomas Watkins from Three Leaf, based in Houston in the US. Thomas has a really impressive scientific background in psychology, which he translates into everything he does in the design world. We are based on other sides of the pond, and we want to talk to you today about designing for those other sides of the pond and how we do UX work across those different areas. We've both lived on other sides and we've had some great conversations about what it means to design for different cultures. Firstly, let me give you the time to introduce yourself, Thomas. How are you doing? Hey, my name is Thomas Watkins. And um, yeah, I'm a UX practitioner. I really consider myself a design psychologist. I think we all are in the profession. And I had a background that was very deep in like cognitive psychology and stuff like that. And, and then when I started working in digital products, I tried the best I could to translate that stuff over. And then I found over the years that it was much more related than, you know, after spending years in graduate school, it seemed to be at the time at the beginning of my career. You know, like specifically one of the things was I wrote my thesis on the relationship between the conscious and unconscious mind. And the thesis is called semantic memory versus uh, episodic memory. And so like how those things relate. So basically, if you're learning under one condition, memorizing things where it's very, very conscious versus in another condition where you're trying to get the feel for uh, a set of things, artificial grammar was the area. How does learning one way help you on the other way and other things like that? So years later, a bunch of interesting books started coming out. One's called Incognito. Another one is called Subliminal. And it talks. they talk about how the way we thought the mind works is actually way different from reality. That the vast majority of our behaviors are governed by unconscious processes. And that we're not even aware of the vast majority of what we're doing. And we're kind of... We think our conscious mind is controlling everything, but we're really like slightly directing things at high level while this collection of what's called subroutines is running our behavior day in, day out. So kind of fast forward to thinking about like designing for users and trying to make sure that usability is good and that when people start using your products, it is seamless to them and it just like fits into their expectations. A lot of that really relates to the study of psychology. And, th- and the last thing is that about that is that this area is called social cognitive neuroscience. And there's vari- variations of that. Sometimes it's cognitive neuroscience or social neuroscience. But social cognitive neuroscience is this area that's a little bit over 20 years old in psychology. And it's what's revealing a lot of the stuff that we now like understand to be the reality about the human mind. So interesting. The human mind in itself. And when you think about any of those topics and in your research, was that ever looking across, as we say, different cultures? and Yeah. So like a lot of things like um, how people are primed to think and like their expectations, a lot of that will be colored by a lot of things, including your environment and what you're kind of used to. So it's so ingrained that we don't realize it, but it's there with us all the time. Yeah. And when you say subroutines, that's maybe yeah. very curious. What do you <laughs> what do you mean what do you mean by that? And what sort of, you know, 
subconscious things or activities does that kind of relate to for anyone in their day to day? And how is that maybe kind of controlling what actions they're taking? Yeah, yeah. So subroutines, I think this terminology comes out of like people who do artificial intelligence and computer programming. But people, when they started studying, if you have like a background in artificial intelligence and stuff and you're studying human intelligence, I think that term got kind of uh, started getting used. And a subroutine is basically a program, a simple program that does one thing, basically. And so you, our mind is filled with these. And if you think about the difference between like humans and animals, an uh, animal that's very predictable, and it's mostly it's subroutines and it has like much less ability to like train new ones. But, you know, we all have subroutines and you're born with some of them and those would, you would call them instincts. But as you start, you know, you grow up and you teach yourself things and you learn things, those become new subroutines that are trained. So like riding a bike and you don't forget how to do it. You could go years without riding a bike and then you get back on a bike and the subroutine kicks in and automatically your feet are pedaling and so forth. So one of the really interesting things about it is that these subroutines, so you're training them and mm-hmm. they take the lead and it's mostly your subroutines doing stuff. So you, you kind of think you're consciously managing things, but it's, it's mostly that. And so when you're studying them, they can interfere with each other. You know, take, for example, like the Stroop effect, where you're basically in experiments like that, you're pitting one subroutine against each other. And so the Stroop effect, if, uh, for those who might not be familiar with the experiment, I think you, you are, you're familiar with it, but you're basically asked to read colors and you're not supposed to read them. You're supposed to say the name of the color that the word is written in. So then the first task is that you just, you just say the colors and the word matches the color. So you have the word orange and it's written in orange. You have the word blue and it's written in blue. Then the second part of the experiment is it's switched. And so what this is basically doing is it's pitting the subroutines against each other. You have a well-exercised subroutine for reading because we practice that all the time. What we don't practice is naming colors. So the task is the naming colors, but then the well-exercised subroutine is competing with it. And it causes an interference effect where it, where it gets in the way of your ability to perform. So it is, you know, all that research about like priming, where there's, you can give someone a word at the beginning of an experiment and they'll start taking on the behaviors that that are associated with the prime word or with interference effects where you get some things competing with others. You get all these interesting behavior effects. But what is interesting is you understand more about what we really are Mm -hmm. and how we operate. And when you take that world and you kind of apply it to design, thinking, there is a lot that you can benefit from as a designer when you're thinking like that. Yeah. How do you embed that in your work today? Is, is this something that you'll quite often relate back to when it comes to research that you've had? How do, if there's an example of a project that you've done, it'd be great to share just how that kind of relates towards cognitive behavioral science. Yeah. So there's, there's like, there's simple examples like consistency. So we always know that as designers, you have to make things consistent, but why is that is because when things are inconsistent or unexpected, you're now summoning the conscious mind to get involved and it doesn't want to get involved. So you want to consciously do the difficult task that requires like the extra intellectual effort. And you want the subroutines to take care of everything else. So things become annoying if they demand our attention 
and it's not taken care of by the subroutine and we have to so simple things like making things consistent with each other and you say okay what is this user accustomed to or when we think about mental models the mental model is how somebody thinks of a certain thing so if you're designing a new system and you say hey we're doing a digital transformation project and these are people who do you know insurance uh, adjusting for a living and they didn't even have a digital product really before how do they think about their work so then we we all do this as designers and researchers right but what it exactly what we're doing is we're trying to understand their world but what we're really doing is what are the things that are they're used to what are things that come automatically to them and how do we fit and match their expectations as much as we can and keep them from having to learn new stuff because if you're bringing their conscious mind into stuff that they shouldn't have to think about like how do i open a file or how do i store something you know the less you can have them thinking about that kind of stuff and thinking about their actual work the less annoying it'll be and you know the more it'll just kind of fit into their world yeah yeah and when we were chatting before we were talking about as a designers naturally curious and continually want to ensure that we are designing an experience that is, as you're saying, seamless. It doesn't challenge too much, but sometimes you do have to allow for those occasions where you've got to provide, you know, forms or, you know, experiences in which there's going to be elements that have got to be a bit more challenging for users to reveal information, say. And what adds an extra complexity for us as designers, but one a challenge that we want to take on is maybe when we're having to design for different cultures, nationalities. I know that I've been involved in lots of projects, probably in not the greatest of practice where, you know, you design it for the US or you design it for the UK and then it gets rolled out across, you know, those other nationalities and you just um, translate what is going on in the experience or, you know, you happen to talk to some stakeholders that are from those different countries, Japan, Singapore, what have you, and then design the experience based on what other requirements and needs that they have. Have you had any experiences like that? Any lessons that we should be really be learning, things that we should be doing better and, and sharing with uh, designers like us? So it's something that I try to research and make sure I'm on top of. Now, I haven't had the interesting occasion of coming across something where that made a, um, a, a giant kind of like make or break difference. But I know that when you and I were kind of talking about this, because we were thinking about the fact that uh, you live in the UK, I live in the US, and what kinds of considerations are relevant to that, I was looking around, I stumbled across this article, uh, UX Differences Across Different Cultures by Jenny Shen. And she talks about a bunch of interesting things, including this study by, I, I don't know how to pronounce this. Is, is, it, is it Gert Hofsted? And, and, and it seems that that research breaks down these kind of cultural differences based uh, and expectations based upon these different dynamics, uh, these different dimensions. Individualism is, is kind of one of the ones that's, that you see pop up. Like that, that pops up a lot in terms of just talking about your expectations about the extent to which someone is supposed to be like about their culture or, or traditions and things like that versus in your culture. Is it praised if everyone is like different and unique kind of thing? Yeah. So that's individualism. And then there's like, uncertainty avoidance 
or, you know, long-term orientation, how much your culture trains you to think long-term about long-term effects of things and, and things like that. So it's something that I, I kind of want, as, as a design psychologist, I kind of want to know more about this stuff. I think a lot of the times, is this the case where other culture, where they're expected to adapt to the U.S. and, and like our norms? And it's- yeah, yeah. I mean, I, even if you think about, say, like, because obviously some amazing uh, platforms, social platforms, as an example, Twitter, what have you, you know, that's a platform that was designed in the States. And then when you want to view something that someone's saying in a different language, you know, just hit a translate button. That's what we do. And then you don't get a like for like translation as a that's a very minor example. But then you wonder about the whole experience. Like actually, you know, in in another country is stating something in 40, is it 40 characters or 40 words that you have to, you know, say a tweet about I think, it's, I think it's characters yeah like is that is that odd to other people <laughs> is that is that a setup that um you know you would you would naturally go through how did that come about like I wonder again when it comes to even examples of you know living in the states and when I would walk into a store someone immediately would say like hi how are you and it's maybe not necessarily for, for getting the immediate response of I'm doing very well thank you how are you and who who are you I think it's different in the UK uh, we're, we're maybe a little bit more standoffish and again is there a sort of behavioral you know, just a different different cultures in which we should be thinking about, okay, how does someone want to be greeted in an experience in comparison to, in the States, in comparison to the UK, was what was one of the ones that we were joking about. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, you know what, one of the things you brought up brings to mind another difference, which is age cohort. When you brought up Twitter, yeah. it kind of made me think of that. And the connotations of when people say a word or a phrase, it's like dramatic different meanings and expectations there. I actually knew someone who had a job in a marketing department. And I think her job was, I think the company said, like, okay, we want to do the cool thing, which is memes. That's what all the the kids are doing nowadays. So your job is to come up with a meme. And she was just racking her brain, like, trying to look for images and phrases to try to find a a (laughs) meme that would be used to market and represent the company. And what the company seemed to like not understand is the randomness and the crowd source. Because it's the crowd has to decide that it's cool. You can't just come up with, you know, it kind of gets voted to the top by everybody liking it. It's not something that's a person in a vacuum can kind of come up with. So that that was an interesting like generational or age cohort. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, or in different different cultures are aging a lot more. Yeah, as you're saying, so like there's far more centurions in Denmark in comparison to the UK, and so how do you how do you then design for you know a much more aging population that are maybe adopting technology sooner than is going on in other places and in not living online necessarily because yeah. if, you're, if you're older you're not maybe every second of your life is online yeah as much as when we're younger and i i kind of foresee that as being i mean it's a known trend that we've got to really keep on top of and as well as you know designing for different cultures that's a really interesting one as designers we've got to take responsibility to understand how to design and make products work better 
for people. We're becoming a much, much closer world, aren't we? Like the connections are, are getting made much sooner and much easier. Right. How do we ensure that we're we're not creating experiences that are challenging across uh, different cultures? The example of like translating a bit of copy is not the right thing to do. Yeah, just putting it into Google Translate. Uh, yeah, it's just, it can't be the way, can it? And um, like, how can we learn some more about how to be the best designer for experiences across the globe? Yeah, like the one that pops up, the I think the most that doesn't have to do with culture, it just has to do with like regional differences with his language. So you have the easy one that's not culture, but it's like German words are long. And so they'll break your design really easily if you have like a data grid and the columns have headers, you have to really think about how a language like that might break it. Or, you know, I've worked on, it's, it's kind of like not on the exciting end of, of uh, the topic, but addresses, the way people fill out or, or the addresses in your region, how they're, how you have to fill it out. So if you're designing something that's going to deal with some kind of an e-commerce aspect or people are going to be buying it all over the globe, it's an interesting problem. So you have internationalization, localization, and how things appear. and But that's not really dealing with expectations and design psychology, but it ends up being one of the ones we're faced with commonly as designers. Oh, definitely. Yeah. How annoying is it when you go on to an experience that's UK-based and you're having to enter a postcode and then actually, or vice versa, when it's a zip code and you can't get the thing ordered and delivered that you're expecting because of that blocker and how do we make sure we stay ahead of the game with things like that when we're designing is interesting we've got to be better at I think <laughs> yeah when you're designing for different cultures and experiences is there any tips that you would have when when getting to understand that some more yeah I would I would say that we would take the research that we usually do and then ex expand the scope of kind of our expectations of what we need to research. So on a normal circumstance, you'd say like, okay, we're going to do interviews and we're going to get enough data to be able to construct personas that then become the center of our design. I think if you're dealing with someone who's from a very different region or you have reason to believe that there may be significantly different cultural expectations there might be another whole layer to even deal with. And for any of this article, they don't have design-oriented stuff, but they do talk a lot about differences in business practices and right. what's considered polite versus not polite. And that's something that I was thinking about before we got on the call. So the concept of writing notes during a meeting and then sending the notes out to everyone who was involved with the meeting afterwards and how, depending on where you are from, that might be considered rude because it's like saying that I don't trust what everyone thinks they got from the meeting. So here's what you need to, they, they, like little oh, things really? like that. Wow. I, I yeah, never yeah. would have thought of that. Like that wouldn't remotely occur to, to me. So th that's the kind of thing I'm, I, then I would have to say to myself, okay, if I was designing for another population, I might need to understand a lot about what um, is considered rude. So if you think about, for example, uh, voice user interfaces, one of the big things they try to do nowadays is put a lot of personality into those. So you ask the voice user interface a question, or maybe you ask it a sarcastic question, and it might get snarky back, and it, and it has kind of like a playful banter. That all has to be designed. So there's different job types, like people with 
backgrounds in improv and things like that play a role in helping uh, develop these kind of interfaces. And so I wonder how that translates. Like if, if is, would things be considered too informal or too rude or too uh, stuck up and tight to different cultures? If you're doing something as complex as like a personality for a voice user interface, you know? Yeah. 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 I've um, done a little bit of design for going out into global more product design manufacturing and what I found really interesting for designing with Japanese and Chinese cultures was they want to go straight into knowing the like minutia detail. They're happy to read all of that. They they want to know all of the ins and outs. So there was a lot more content and a lot more detail at the beginning of the e-commerce funnel, if you like. Whereas between the West, like there's there's less of that. Probably just more visual less details, more images before then heading into product reviews and manufacturing details. And it's it's things like that that you don't really know until you go through the experience of designing for it that or, you know, speaking to to people in those cultures and understanding, okay, so what are your what are your needs? And the way that we found that was just through interviewing actually and like running scenarios and using an interpreter uh, to help and really working as a team with that uh, interpreter to ensure that we're asking the right questions that we're building the right stimulus and design visuals to help provoke the right conversations to then learn what we could do and it did result in quite different experiences across the different cultures that we had to create so as a as another sort of example from then on so because you, you guys found that in testing so as you you did like you did prototypes and then tested it from people of different backgrounds and then you found yeah. the difference wow i wonder if that's maybe the more efficient way to find it so instead of becoming like an expert on each culture <laughs> you, mock, you mock it up test it among a diverse crowd and then see how people react to things yeah potentially and i like i I remember doing like just as um, even a university student when I was creating a my my final uh, dissertation was about manufacturing products in China. I wanted to learn a little bit more, and it was a case of just interviewing Chinese manufacturers and finding out as much as I possibly could. Maybe it's just again for different designers who absorb information in different ways. Or I think there's such beauty in going into the Hofstede research is excellent. And we'll be put a link to the article that you've pulled up, Thomas, as well, to help people when it comes to designing for different cultures. But yeah, I wonder if it's kind of like having a right balance between scientific research like that, and then also speaking to people, running those sort of sessions is a great way of being able to empathize for different audiences across the world. Yeah. And you know who often end up being kind of the experts on this, like lay experts on it is people who grew up in immigrant families. And so mm-hmm. they, they know like, well, my parents expected this because they were, they were raised over here, but I was raised over here in the US and my expectations are completely different from my parents kind of thing. Absolutely. I think it's definitely something that you can be inspired by, isn't it? Countries and cultures are are so different and we need to be respectful and understanding and listen and speak to people from those countries when designing as well as onboarding all of the right research behind yourself while doing that. 
I'm trying to think of some good examples between the US and the UK when I was there. Anything around travel, like uh, traveling using public transportation? Oh, that's a good one. Actually, that's a really good one. Maybe we've got a topic here about the fact that different tube or metro systems are kind of internationally recognised from some places to places. Like, I don't know if you've been on the London underground in comparison to like the New York metro. It's really relatable, isn't it? And that's kind of like, it's a well-known global design system. And that's why design systems work so well as well in our industry as to where it's got to today is that it's a a method and a tool that builds up patterns and it's kind of what you were saying at the beginning. What's the, what's the right terminology? So it's not something that's in their subroutine, but it is something that is kind of consciously easy to follow. I don't know how would you describe yeah, yeah, that? Con- well, yeah, the conscious and you've got the unconscious and subroutines build up yeah. the unconscious. Yeah. <laughs> I think like systems like that is something that people can understand follow. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying because I'm looking for examples that relate to because they've got one with an app that's got it's under this part where it says German culture precise and expectations around precision. I don't know. This that seems like a tough nut to crack if you're having to design for a system that has to truly take into account different expectations, like very different expectations. Yeah. So there's just like a little minor example about instead of saying buy one, get one free, it's got to be between North America and the Philippines. Buy one, get one free in North America, but in the Philippines it is buy one, take one beverage. (laughs) It's got to be much more distinct in the language that gets used because it means something completely different. So it's such a prime example of where you can't just put a translation button, like a Google Translate. It's got to be thought through. Mm -hmm. I know I've like definitely worked on projects where much more in the financial side of things where we've just, yeah, designed for the UK and US and then roll out across the other locations. And then like they've got, they've got like people have got access to the content management system to edit and translate the copy. But there's been a lot less empathy towards just how much it's got to be translated, as we were saying before. And like even reading left to right is something that we do, but you need to consider right to left and you need to consider pictographs in Japan in comparison to use of words in, or basically the alphabet and Roman language, basically. Mm-hmm. And here is advice is hiring a local copywriter to ensure that you've got the most effective copy for your demographics, avoiding any cultural taboos. That might be the most practical advice. Definitely. Honestly, because that's, because that's where it's kind of a devil's in the details kind of thing where that's where you'd have the most opportunity to like mess up if you're writing a whole bunch of words. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Just do not put yourself there. Have someone that is from that nationality works with you to understand the right way of articulating the message that you want to put across in the right way. Right, because your branding department already has to think about tone and you know how do we how do we develop kind of the writing style for kind of our website if you're using the product, what kind of tone do we want to be transmitting? And it seems like that kind of thing would be vulnerable potentially to uh, 
these kinds of cultural differences. Absolutely. So there was the whole thing about feature phones versus smartphones years ago, but I did meet folks from different parts of the world where feature phones were still a thing long into when everybody, I guess, in the West had moved on to smartphones. And one of the interesting differences is that folks heard about regions where I think this this gentleman I was talking to was from Uganda. And I believe he was telling me about farmers using feature phones, but in just a very different way from uh, how we use them in the West, where they use it for texting and getting information about the weather and things that would happen. And, and it just, yeah. it, it, was a, it was a hyper pragmatic usage of it, like a tool, an informational tool. I mean, I don't know if that would come up if, you know, designing differences, if that, if you'd have to cater to such a uh, situation. I've also heard about, I don't know if you've heard about like uh, in parts of India where a lot of banking is done via phone. And I don't know if that's a, a feature phone thing, but it's it's lots of small banking activities are done, not in a phone app like your banking app, but like uh, other things that I don't understand. <laughs> but, but yes, the, the use of phones there <laughs> is different. Yeah. It can be, can be like totally, totally different from what yeah. we I know, almost like simpler days with a simpler phone, wasn't it? <laughs> right. <laughs> the old feature phone in comparison to the way in which we operate now. Yeah, where it's a computer. It is. <laughs> Unlimited amount of activities that you can do. And again, just like integrating with all the right, when we talked about social networks before, thinking about WeChat and other popular platforms across the globe. Yeah, in the middle of the article, it talks about researching local UI patterns. And it's about before you get halfway down the article, a little bit up from there, but um, different norms dealing with parts of the screen, whether you're in, so it's, it compares WeChat versus Momo versus Duomi music. So I know, well, I've, I've never heard of most of these. Lots to learn from it. <laughs> yeah, a lot to learn from it. <laughs> Do your team use design systems when building out user interfaces is that common practice now and do you think that is something that would help when it comes to designing for different patterns i mean for for me design systems end up being just a utility to get, get things as consistent as possible and make mm -hmm. sure that things are i haven't had the occasion to to deal with the interesting problem of like how do we make this so it's something that can help us solve I think that if, if it's something where you have to think about like, okay, people have to put in their address here, or <clears throat> this is a part of the interface that's going to change. Like, how do you most efficiently handle that? So you're not building the same thing, you know, seven different times for seven different situations, but how it can switch. It seems like a good opportunity, I think, doesn't it? I think like, so. It's, it's a good, it's uh, already, we know it's a very efficient way of being able to build out the right patterns and libraries and work work with teams is there a better way in which we can use that to ensure we're creating more global design patterns and accounting for um, experiences yeah that's a good point because you already have the concept of variations so you have like a component and then a variation so that might be the place where you solve it where you say like okay this is the navigation component and then these four variations are based upon what we had exposed to folks in different regions. 
Yeah, definitely. Do you find cultural differences between different states in the US as well? Is there things that you've got to ensure that you're designing for from state to state? Any interesting experiences that you've had with that? So there definitely are huge cultural differences between states in the US. However, I can't think of an example where that had to come to light in an, in an interface that I can think of. I, the closest I can think of is being in Texas. One of the common use cases is oil industry. And a lot of times we have worked on a lot of projects where we're digitizing a work process of folks who are very, very rural and, and work with their hands a lot at refineries and things like that. And that one would be more of a, a lack of expectation of having to do everything digitally. And there's the expectation of I should just be able to do my work and not have to enter things. But that's a, I think <laughs> that one might be a more, a, a more of a feature of a, a digital transformation project where you're dealing with workers who don't spend that much time in the digital realm. And yeah. their use of digital stuff isn't even often for work. It might be communication, entertainment, and things like that. Yeah, yeah. But even so, yeah, I know, again, it's like designing for other more contextual things, isn't it? As well as uh, cultural. I suppose there's an example of uh, where I previously used to work as well that we had to consider tone of voice and language and branding across from the States to the UK. And we we never reached a full conclusion, but we had a realisation of, you know, selling techniques or uh, the way in which we would portray different ways in, in doing brand work spoke to people when we were user testing in the US more so than when we were user testing in the UK. Different mediums were used and felt that in the US, you know, a particular tone of voice worked a lot better than someone in the UK, which is quite interesting. Mm -hmm. I feel like I can't say too much about that one annoyingly. <laughs> <laughs> it's giving away an IP. <laughs> that's that's funny. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think the one I've really honestly run across the most is expectations by industry. That's that's if if I was to be really truthful, it would be working in fintech and even oil, like so large companies, the expectation around the seriousness of in the of the tone of the software that you're building way less room for kind of playfulness versus if you're working on something that's more of a B2C kind of a product that has, you know, kind of a wide, and it may be something that's not as serious like gaming. You're able to have way more liberty with the way you design and the way you write things. Even if a designer has most of their experience in a certain region, they kind of get locked in a, a way of viewing the world. So if you've spent, you know, maybe your whole career doing enterprise software and only that, then it's hard to actually impress people. For, you know, if you're if you were trying to get hired working for a gaming company or or like a social media type of a company, your portfolio wouldn't be very impressive to them because it's all just like serious <laughs> stuff. Yeah, <to> yeah. <laughs> it's it's always like a big subject. Yeah, when you're a UX designer, you take some large subject matter switches, don't you? And some people might go niche into, as you're saying, an enterprise thing, but 
sometimes you can have one day doing e-commerce and the next day doing something for a charity or what have you, having that ability to diversify and consider the needs for those different industries and being open to learning more about those, almost that skill set probably translates very, very well into how to design for different industries Again, using those same skills, but for when you're designing for different cultures, taking on board that information the same way, considering and empathizing with users and, and people from industry to industry as you as you do right now, but for culture to culture, might be a good message to take away. Yeah, I always tell people that in our profession, we're usually experts on the method, not the domain usually. So we, we could switch from, like you're saying, like you could switch from doing, you know, the medical industry stuff to doing fintech to doing energy. And it's dramatically different domains, but oftentimes like the same patterns, right? So. Exactly. I think that's a, a really nice um, lasting note, isn't it? <laughs> like use those skills that you've got there already. And we're still working on them as well. Like you're continually doing so and learning more. And there's a huge space in this and how to be a better global designer. Could you say that? And and considering uh, designing for different different cultures and listen and speak and learn from those people. Totally. I could take that as a takeaway. Yeah. Is there anything else you think we should share, Thomas, in the the rest of the podcast? Any other lasting notes that you've got as well? Yeah, I think I think uh, to me, it's just that we're always learning. One of the things that anyone who's spent a bunch of time doing usability research, no matter how many patterns you're familiar with, no matter how up on the trends you think you are. The reason why we do research is because we're always learning new and surprising things. So I think that's kind of a reminder to why we need to have that always as a part of our work. I couldn't agree more. Could not agree more. Cool. Well, I think we can leave it there. Please do follow, subscribe, do whatever you do in your different podcast platforms in different cultures um, (laughs) to keep in the loop with the Tied Together podcast. Thank you so, so much for your time, Thomas. Thank you, Lindsay. It's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Tied Together. If you have any comments or you have any feedback for us, you can always email us at tiedtogether at kahesis.co.uk.